Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, found on page 926 of those blue pew Bibles in front of you if you're using those. Acts chapter 17. If you're visiting with us for the first time, you are entering into the middle of a study. We're going through one of the books of the New Testament, uh, written by a man named Luke, a narrative and a history of the early days of Christians following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So we've been in this study for much of this year with a few breaks. We've come back to it recently, the last couple weeks, and this morning we are in Acts chapter 17 and 18. Sometimes we do little chunks like one verse, sometimes we do big chunks like two chapters of Acts. And we trust at different levels and heights we see different things to wonder at from God's word. So we're glad you're here if you're visiting with us. Please uh, do stay and meet us. We would love to meet you after, especially to know how we can serve you or pray for you. One of the, probably one of the most significant challenges of living the Christian life, that is living by faith in an unseen God, in a resurrected King Jesus who we know to be real and yet not here present with us, To be living by faith that he will come again but hasn't yet come. Is that there aren't many ways in which we can latch on to predictable results in the Christian life. Living by faith often leaves us without predictable results. Take for example the week that is in front of you. Christ says, follow me. He says, take up your cross. He says, consider your life as loss and you will gain it. But he doesn't tell you how that doctor's appointment is going to go. He doesn't tell you how many years you're going to live. He doesn't tell you what's going to happen in that relationship that is teetering. Many ways living in trust in Jesus' leadership leaves us without the promise of predictable results. And I think... Maybe one particular area we feel that most is in our evangelism. In us taking the gospel to other people. Telling them about Jesus Christ. Have you ever, have you ever been able to predict how people will respond to you in that? I know I haven't. Evangelism will be much of the focus of our sermon this morning. We're in the middle of following the Apostle Paul on a missionary journey, going from place to place in order to tell people about Jesus. He is evangelizing. Along the way, he hits the major city centers in this passage of Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth. Not every city and not every encounter he has in each city is the same. Everything does not always go smoothly. The results in each place differ. The results are not always Or maybe ever predictable. As we follow Paul's journey this morning in Acts 17 and 18. And observe what he does. And what happens to him. There are three conclusions I want us to draw. That are especially applicable and helpful for our gospel ministry. These conclusions I think will help us understand what Paul did. When he went to share the gospel. And what we aim to do as we do the same. Despite the, the results being unpredictable, since we have the same ministry 
as the Apostle Paul had, we live by the same faith, then we can expect that these conclusions will also be relevant for us. So here they are. The three main conclusions I aim for us to draw together from this passage. First, Paul preaches the same message. Paul preaches the same message. Second, people respond in different ways. People respond in different ways. Third, God promises to save through gospel preaching. And he does. God promises to save through gospel preaching. And he does. Now believe it or not. We are going to eventually this morning read almost all of Acts 17 and 18. But I'm going to take it in parts as we go. Let's begin by reading what Paul does when he arrives in each city. Thinking especially about how it leads us to the conclusion that Paul preaches the same message. Let's start reading in Acts chapter 17, 1 to 3. And then I'll tell you as we move to different parts. Now when they, that is Paul and company, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. I move down to verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breadth and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move. And have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now look at chapter 18, verse four. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Then finally, verse 19. After, the, after this, sorry, 19. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So across chapter 17 and 18, Paul goes to different cities and preaches to very diverse audiences. In Thessalonica and Berea, Paul addresses devout Jews and others whose belief was in God and the God of the Old Testament scriptures. But then in Athens, he's in the presence of pagan philosophers who can't say for certain who God is. And who are fairly certain that whoever the gods are, they aren't that involved in what goes on in the world. Paul's evangelistic approach is not always the same. This is, I think, because Paul knows that people are people and evangelism is personal. He knows that he needs to know who he's speaking to. He has taken time and attentiveness to observe and listen to people and their culture. His example demonstrates that Paul never thought the act of gospel sharing was a sort of wooden, prepackaged, formulaic thing. Nor does Paul check his mind at the door or expect his listeners to do that. He presents cogent reasons he asks them to consider. There are verbs here that describe his approach as he reasoned with them. He tried to persuade them. He sought to prove to them. So Christian, this is a motivation for your own careful study of God's word. Study, yes, for your own interest. Study for your own spiritual growth. And study for others' sake, too. Read the Bible prayerfully considering the people you know who don't know God. And, and ask God in, in your time in his word to help you remember and represent his wisdom you're reading the next time you speak to your unbelieving friend. Some of us have been, uh, know very, very much, very personally, the good fruit that comes from apologetics. The kind of work that Paul does here to sort of grapple with human philosophy and answer it with God's word. Apologetic resources can be very helpful. They can help us to be ready for the reasons people give for why they don't believe in God or why they don't believe in the gospel. So if you don't already, maybe occasionally make it a habit to pick up an apologetic Christian book. Maybe Tim Keller's Reason for God to help you understand the approach of an atheistic or secular culture. Or Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ to, helping, to help interact with people who challenge the idea of Christ's resurrection. 
or even on our bookstall to think how you go about witnessing in an apologetic way. Pick up Fool's Talk by Oz Guinness. But even though Paul's starting point is different, depending on who he's talking to, his ultimate aim was always the same. To arrive at the gospel with those who are listening to him. To persuade his listeners, as he does in Athens and in the synagogues, to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ who came to live, die, and rise again for the salvation of sinners. I'm not sure what it is if you're here this morning and maybe you're not following Jesus. I'm not sure what it is that might strike you this morning and might lead to you considering more deeply and fully Jesus Christ. Maybe it was a song that we sang. Jesus Christ becoming sin for us. Maybe it's this sermon. Maybe it's even a conversation you're going to have with someone after this. But whatever encounter it is, we as a church mean to be aiming you to know that Jesus Christ is a savior for sinners. However good your time with us is, however encouraging or helpful it is, we trust and hope that it will be most helpful to you because you've come to hear about Jesus and come to hear about his life and death and resurrection can bring you into eternal life. As Paul navigates both the personal side of evangelism and this rational side of evangelism, he is intent on drawing the same spiritual conclusion. Jesus is necessary for salvation. Evangelism is not just personal. It's not just rational. It is also deeply spiritual act. Christianity is not humanism. We do not want to tell people that they can find and follow and fulfill a way on their own that gets to God. We do not want people to be misdirected to think that salvation can happen by will of the mind or wisdom of the world. No, instead we are content and confident to rest in the knowledge that only the spirit working through the mighty word of God can awaken dead hearts. Our role in gospel Ministry is both to seek to persuade our listeners and to protect Christ's message that he has given us. This will require love for lost people and love for Christ. We love people enough to talk to them and we love Christ enough and his truth enough to tell people when we talk to them the whole gospel. Paul's heart broke for Athens. He saw it as a place that was submerged in idolatry. And Paul told them that what they needed to do was to repent in order to escape God's judgment. We need God to help us. Help us both lovingly know people and lovingly tell them that they need Jesus. To see their hope is wrapped up in a message That if we altered it for them or if they took it and changed it just to be more palatable for them, that will make it become a useless bit of knowledge. We are ambassadors making God's appeal, his loving appeal through us. 
And we are stewards entrusted with a gospel message that we make sure to pass along in the same way that we received it. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to bring in uh, several new members into our church. And before we do that, we will have told them what we believe as a church and what the scriptures teach about the gospel. We will have explained to them our statement of faith and how we think it reflects what the Bible teaches. We will have described to them how we aim to live around the gospel. And we will have asked them to explain what they believe the gospel is. Now to the outsider looking in, that might look a bit bureaucratic. But I don't think it is. It is us taking every measure to faithfully protect what is necessary to our existence as a true church of Jesus Christ. To ensure that we continue to be formed and shaped and united around faithfully believing and preaching the gospel message. So we see in this first conclusion that no matter where Paul went or who his audience was. Paul demonstrates that faithful gospel ministry always preaches the same gospel message. Our second conclusion then. Second conclusion as we watch Paul move from city to city in these two chapters. We find that people as they hear Paul respond in different ways. Some reject and others receive. So we're going to spend most of our time in this conclusion looking at how some reject the gospel message. There are three reasons why people reject Paul's message and why they'll reject ours. The first is because it threatens their way of life. Because it threatens their way of life. Look at chapter 17 verse 5. When Paul goes into the synagogue and preaches the gospel in Thessalonica, here is how listeners respond. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Look down at chapter 18, verse 12 and 13 to see another response. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So back in 17, as soon as some of the Jews in Thessalonica noticed that others were gravitating towards Paul's message, they turned on Paul. The text says they were jealous. The way of the gospel will not appeal to us or to anyone. If what we desire most is for the world to revolve around ourselves. For these folks, religion was a means to an end. To garner popularity and praise. To carve out a place in society. To be seen as somebody in somebody's eyes. But then Paul comes along. 
preaching that none of us is better, none of us is deserving of praise except for Christ, none of us can merit our way to God except through Christ's righteousness, all of us need his grace, and this ticks people off to the point of violence. Now, if you are a Christian, you didn't always respond to the gospel in the same believing and trusting way you do now. Remember that the gospel sounds sweet to your ears because you've been given a heart that hears grace when you hear that Jesus died for your sins. Thank God that he chose to give you that gift. But without ears that have been opened, the gospel easily sounds like a threat. Following Jesus calls for an end to proud posturing before God. To surrender old concepts of gaining God's favor through our own obedience. It calls us to be rid of the notion that rule keeping is an acceptable way to God. For those who want to maintain a grip of control on their lives... The call to humble surrender given in the gospel is a threat. I wonder if you're here this morning and you've thought that. That you're afraid to believe in Jesus because you will have to change your way of life. Stop doing things you enjoy doing. Start doing things you don't like doing. Friend, I can tell you with all sincerity that I was there once. I thought that God simply wanted to keep me from being happy. So I did the opposite thing. I took the opposite direction and I did everything how I wanted and when I wanted. And the thing is, that didn't actually make me happy. It made me feel terribly empty. As I imagine you either feel now or will. Apparently you and I aren't the best judges of what is best for us. And the things we naturally love may be things that eventually kill us. Yes, Jesus calls you to lay down your life. And it is a threat to your way of doing things. But maybe what you haven't seen yet is that it is the only way to truly live. You can't trust yourself to know where or how to get to real life, but you can trust Jesus. He died for your sins that separated you from God. And then he rose in victorious resurrection into life so that in him you may have life too. Hand over control to him. And you will never regret it. Some people reject the gospel message because it threatens their way of life. Others, secondly, reject the gospel message because it doesn't fit their version of truth. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 32. This is the response of some of the listeners in Athens after Paul's presentation of the creator God and the savior Jesus. Acts seventeen thirty-two. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. When Paul arrived in Athens and began preaching, he was at some point invited to come and speak before the Areopagus, or as we know it, Mars Hill. Now, this was either a place, it might have been both a place and a people, it's either a place, a prominent hill where the council met, or it was the council itself. Greek people were known for their interest in philosophy and ideas. 
And they placed a very high value on people who could compellingly present those ideas. Paul's invitation to address the Areopagus was like one of us being given an invitation. If you came from another country to the United States and immediately be invited to address an assembly of the deans of all the Ivy League schools. This was a place of high academic honor, high intellectual prestige. We're told in Acts 17, 18, that the Epicureans and Stoics especially desired to hear more from Paul. These groups, these philosophical schools, believe very different things. One author summarizes their views this way. The Epicureans considered the gods to be so remote as to take no interest in and have no influence on human affairs. The world was due to chance, a random concourse of atoms, and there would be no survival of death and no judgment. So human beings should pursue pleasure, especially the serene enjoyment of a life detached from pain, passion, and fear. The Stoics, however, acknowledge the supreme God, but in a pantheistic way, that is many gods, confusing him with the world soul. The world was determined by fate. Human beings must pursue their duty, resigning themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason. God lives in all, we live in God, kind of thing. So, Paul steps before an audience that held that God cannot be personally known, that life has no meaning other than enjoyment or simple grin and bear it, and once it's all over, it's over. And what does Paul tell them? He tells them that God can be personally known. That we do not make him, he makes us to have life in him. That every human being actually does, because we're created by God, have dignity and value as God's offspring. And that he is not only a caring creator of life, but he is invested in such a way that he is the judge of all who live. A judge who speaks to us and tells us to turn from our worship of other things and other ideas. The proof of God's existence and his intention to judge all mankind is evident, Paul says, in God's raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul's message to the Areopagus was full of meaning, hope, and purpose for every human life listening. It was such a better offer than what the Epicureans and Stoics brought to the table. But as soon as Paul mentions the resurrection, the miraculous work of God to raise a person, the son of God from the dead, what happens? Many people stop listening and they start booing Paul, mocking him. Luke's narratival comment in Acts 17 verse 21 shows us that our culture is not so different from the one in Athens. Do you see that in verse 21? Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We are, as a culture, obsessed with new ideas. TV shows and TED Talks are our Areopagus. People are hungry for the next best-selling book, the newest trend, the latest diet, the hottest fashion, the most popular show. These are the containers that carry our cultural philosophies. So this encounter at the Areopagus is still very relevant for us. 
With all the information and ideas swirling around, you'd think people would be, with all these new ideas and our gravitation towards them, you would think that people would be changing more than they do in line with these new ideas. That there would be some more openness to adjusting personal perspectives and opinions. But isn't it true that our culture seems today more stridently fixed to their position than ever? It's a strange combination. Wanting to hear something new, but never really changing. Paul's encounter with those obsessed with the new shows that people aren't necessarily searching for the truth in order to believe. They may be searching for validation for the truths they already believe. Unfortunately, like the Athenian philosophers, the fundamental idea many hold to today is no truth at all. This world, this life is about so much more than hedonism or fatalism. God designed and purposed each of us for worship. To derive and enjoy life through knowing that he is our life. And any idea or philosophy that seeks a shortcut around that is as old as the first counter philosophy presented in the garden by the liar Satan. The gospel does not fit into our human constructs. It does not align with so-called human wisdom. The gospel confronts all those ideas as short-sighted and flawed and folly. Because God, not us, is the all-wise one. He sees and searches our hearts. He holds our breath in his hands. And in his kindness and love, he chooses to speak to us and say to us that the wages of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, our roots are ancient. Our anchor is in the word of God that is older than time. So you do not need to feel self-conscious that you are not up on all the latest trends or thoughts. You don't need to feel like you're behind because you're not following the most recent Twitter battle over some idea. We do not need to accommodate our message to the most recent cultural trends. We don't need to change our approach from a monologue that has us all sitting in silence to hear from God to a kind of conversational approach or dialogue that entertains the validity of any and all ideas. The new ideas you hear today have been around before. And they will evaporate tomorrow just as they have done so many times before. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Just because we seek to follow God and aim to receive his gospel in our lives and to carry it to others, that doesn't mean we're always going to be given a full or a fair hearing when we do. Even though Paul is clearly on the side of truth, he doesn't always even get to finish what he's saying before the opposition starts. It's a scary thing to know that people might hate you when they find out by your proclamation that you're a Christian. Or in an increasingly hostile environment that people will just hate you. I doubt true Christianity will be the majority view in this world until Jesus comes back. 
For now we must not be surprised. That just as they did with the Apostle Paul. They will reject our message. Because it doesn't fit their version of the truth. One last way we see people responding in rejection. They reject thirdly because they aren't ready to believe. Look at the second half of verse 32 chapter 17. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. The gospel calls for an immediate decision that some people just aren't ready to make. Paul tells the Athenians that there is an urgency and they need to respond to the gospel. Jesus is coming back to judge. They need to get ready by repenting of their sins. There is life, but it needs to be received from the resurrected Jesus and from nowhere else. And what do they say? Come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. I wonder if you've heard that. Let's talk about this again. Maybe we can meet again. Maybe you can bring this up later when I'm ready to hear it. It can be easy to take people's rejection of our message like this personally. Our fear of being rejected like that often leads to our silence. Friends, the people who rejected and said, come back tomorrow, we're not rejecting Paul. They're rejecting the message he brought. The text is clear that as soon as Paul would get to the gospel, that's when people would shut the conversation down. It was folly to them. Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians, this is how the gospel sounds to hearts who have not yet been given the spirit of God. So it can be easy to grow frustrated or discouraged when our loved ones or our friends or our co-workers do not see the urgency of coming to peace with God when their eternity hangs in the balance. But remember how many times you had to hear the gospel before you believed it. Was it 10 times? Was it a hundred times? Was it a thousand times? Why did you ever respond in faith and repentance? And why did people keep telling you, even when you kept saying, come back tomorrow? Paul will later write to the Corinthians that some plant the gospel seed, others water the gospel seed, but it is God who gives the growth. The gospel messenger endeavors to sow the seeds everywhere we go. But we may not always be around to reap the harvest. So if a person refuses to believe the gospel when you tell them, pray that God will send you back around to them when they're ready. Or by your witness that God would soften their hearts a little more so that they're ready the next time they meet another Christian who tells them about Jesus. Rejection is one way that people often respond to the gospel. But still, Acts 17 and 18 shows us another response. Some reject, but others receive. Look at chapter 17, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And down in verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Look down at verse 34. 
But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And then 18, verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. This is how Jesus said it would go. His kingdom would start like a little mustard seed, a tiny seed. But in the end, over time, it would eventually grow into a giant tree that spread so far that the nations could come and live in its branches. From Jesus, from Paul's ministry, we learn that kingdom growth happens little by little. In each city, the majority of people turned Paul away. But in each city, some people, even if only one or two or a handful, heard and believed. Paul's message was never the reason People rejected. That stayed the same. It was never just about that. The message came. Paul preached the same message. And then people fell on one side or the other. The reason they rejected was because they chose to reject. And they received because God had enabled them to receive it. Faithfully preaching the gospel is enough to bring people to know Christ. It is enough. And that is where we settle in as a core conviction behind our ministry as a church. Faithfully proclaiming the gospel is enough to bring people to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The results will not always be huge. So let's not insert human metrics of numbers into the mix. Or we'll start wondering if gospel preaching is bringing enough people to Christ. The pursuit of greater numbers will inevitably result in us changing the gospel message. The people who come to Christ will not always be in the number we think, or, nor will it be the people we think. There were lifelong Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica who heard Paul and did not rage But upon hearing the gospel, repented. There were listeners in the crowd in the Areopagus who didn't mock, but made their way directly to Paul afterwards and asked, how can I be saved? So you might share the gospel with a server in a restaurant and they might say, no, thank you. But God wants the message to hit the heart of the person who eavesdropped from the table next to yours. You just don't know. He might want you to begin a conversation with a friend this week that will immediately end due to their hostility only for you to find five or 10 or 15 years later that they have now remembered that conversation and they have called you in crisis and want to speak with you about Jesus. You just don't know. We will never be able to predict who God intends to save. Which must mean God simply wants us to share with whoever we can. Some of us are afraid, and we confess together this morning in our prayer gathering, of our fears in bringing the gospel to other people. Some of us are afraid we won't speak the gospel the right way. 
We won't come to the conversation with the best arguments. We won't know what to say when someone raises a counterpoint. Friends, Paul could not have delivered a more compelling argument than he did at the Areopagus that day. And people still did not listen. It's not about the strength of the argument or the compellingness of the way you bring it. The power to save is in the message, not in the eloquence of our mouths. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ sends us to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So from these chapters, we have two very helpful conclusions regarding our own evangelistic ministry. Like Paul, we aim to preach the same message. Knowing that as we do, people will respond in different ways. Some will receive and others will reject. I think these two conclusions are enough to persuade us to be faithful in gospel ministry this week, regardless of the outcome. But there's still one more conclusion that enables us to be hopeful as we speak the gospel to others. And it's this. God promises to save Through gospel preaching. And he does. Let's look at Acts chapter 18. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And you'll notice if you read later, verse 12 and on, that God fulfills his promise. Attempts are made to attack Paul. And the Roman government of all people protects him. And he's not harmed. After getting run out of Thessalonica and mocked out of Athens and harassed in Corinth... Paul apparently needed some divine encouragement. The same resurrected Jesus who appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus to confront him, to convert him, and to commission him, now appears to Paul in comfort and to encourage him. Why this message from Jesus at this time? Well, because Jesus knows what it's like to face constant threat and rejection from people he is seeking to save. That was his entire ministry. When Jesus shared the gospel, nearly everyone rejected him. Oftentimes, people sought to kill him. And eventually they did. Jesus must have grown to anticipate that the typical response he would receive would be opposition. But still he went. Still he spoke. Still he laid down his life to provide the salvation he had been proclaiming. Jesus knew that through his testimony and his death and his life, 
the people of God that God had given him would become his people. He counted on it. Listen to Jesus speaking in John 6. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So what could Jesus say that would help Paul and give him hope to continue in this ministry of proclaiming Jesus no matter if people reject or accept it? Well, Jesus brings this message. He says, don't stop talking about me. Don't be afraid. And don't forget what I'm doing. Church, don't stop talking about Jesus. Despite the pressures we face to be silent in our work, to be silent in our legal system, to be silent in our schools, to be silent in our courts of opinion, keep talking about our Savior. This is how people will hear and be saved. Though our opponents may seem powerful at times, there is no power greater than Christ's power to save. Church, do not be afraid. Jesus tells Paul, don't be afraid. Likely because Paul was like us and was getting afraid. Or he was at least about to start getting afraid of the prospect of entering another town and another conversation where the end result is again him getting beaten, mocked, or worse. And he won't even have to go somewhere else to experience that. In Acts 18, 12 through 17, the Jews drag him before the Roman court. What consolation could Jesus give Paul that would ease his mental anxiety and his heart of fear that he might get harmed? Jesus gives this, the promise of his presence. I am with you. For Paul, maybe for you who know the Old Testament inside and out, these words are immensely encouraging. Because this is exactly what God in the Old Testament said to Moses to Joshua, to Isaiah and the prophets, a promise reiterated through God's people over and over to leaders and spokespeople for him who faced oppression and opposition and rejection. This is always what God has said. I am with you. A promise reiterated time and time again to God's people as they face enemies on every side. Jesus speaking to Paul as the son of God, the resurrected Lord was bringing to Paul all the backing of the sovereign Lord of history who had many times over successfully thwarted every enemy, no matter how big, no matter how loud, no matter how powerful. Sometimes he did it with nothing more than a word spoken through his weak messenger. I would guess that do not be afraid are the words we most need to hear from Jesus today. Even though we don't currently face as aggressive an enemy as Paul did, many of us are very afraid to share the gospel. I'm afraid to speak about Jesus. Not because I think I'll go to jail, but simply because of the stupid reason I'm afraid of making a conversation awkward. Some of us are concerned that we'll get ridiculed. Others afraid of losing friendships. Maybe for a few of us, the stakes are even higher. 
Maybe we're afraid we might lose our jobs. Or one day we might get sued. Maybe a day in the future imprisoned. The consolation offered to us from our risen king is not that we'll never get rejected. It is that if and when we are, he is with us. And this is all we could ever need or hope for. Christ in our rejection. Christ in our persecution. Christ in our societal isolation. Christ even in our lawsuits and loss of jobs. I've also found that many times the fears that keep us from sharing the gospel with someone when confronted with faithful witness and the opportunity to share the gospel, the fears that keep us from doing that end up proving to be empty threats all along. Satan doesn't want the power of God leaving our mouths. Because he knows how effective it is to rescue people out of the kingdom of darkness. So how does he try to stop our witness? By suggesting any possible fear that might dissuade us from speaking. That's how he does it. Oftentimes, in the end, these fears are proved false. And have no basis in reality. Quite the contrary. In the face of these fears, we have Jesus' last consolation. Satan is a liar who tells us not to share because it will cause us harm. But God says, when you speak the gospel, he will save. So don't forget, thirdly, what God is doing. Don't be afraid. Don't stop speaking. And don't forget what God is doing as we go to take the gospel. Jesus tells Paul that through Paul's witness, Jesus would protect him. And he would search and find the people God had chosen to save in Corinth. God is not interested in people dying in ignorance and darkness. He is the one that initiates the plan to begin with. That sends the son. And then in the power of the son sends his church to spread the gospel that saves. So as we go into a world full of opposition. We go in search of the people God has ordained for us to meet. The people have been made ready and receptive by the spirit of God. Yes, they will be mixed among all those who reject. But the people are there. They have been picked. They have been seen. The people whose hearts have been moved to listen to God's word. And eager to respond to the call to repent and believe. The people who were once enemies of the cross of Christ. But through the mighty power of God working in our gospel proclamation. Will become sons and daughters in God's family. Don't forget what he's doing. We trust in God that his heart is for people to be saved and his heart and his desire for these things is greater than any of our desires for the same. He sends us out as agents of his salvation and as people hear from us, they hear words that will bring them to life. God promises to save and God will time and time deliver on that promise. So as we conclude, notice these three conclusions. Same message. People respond differently. But God does promise and does save through the preaching of the gospel. These conclusions should form our expectations around our own gospel ministry. Be encouraged that everywhere Paul goes in Acts 17 to 18, people come to faith in Christ. 
God is working in many different places. It's not always the first people you're going to talk to. It might not even be the people you talk directly to. But as the message is preached, God will deliver on his promise. And over the course of church history, the ones and the twos and threes where this all started have become the tens and the twenties and the hundreds and the thousands and the millions that will fill heaven. The church will grow from Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and, it, and we have our roots in them. The gospel stretches through their witness even to us. The church grows through the seeds of faithful gospel witness. We have every reason to believe the same God working through the same message we preach will bring the same result from our evangelism. Some will reject. And for them and for you, if you are this morning rejecting, you will face the judge at the end when he comes. Friend, repent of your sins before that day comes. Find life in Christ. But others will receive Christ because God promises to save. If God tarries, I trust that we as a church will get to celebrate, either in this life or in the next, how God chose through our witness that many generations after us would be able to attribute their salvation to our openly sharing Christ with them or with their parents or with their grandparents. Or with their great-grandparents. So if you're afraid. Listen to Christ. He will be with us as we take the gospel. If you're discouraged. Listen to Christ. He has many people he aims to save. And when there are lost people around us this week. Let's speak to them about Christ. Let's pray. We, thankful, we thank you for the hopeful encouragement in Acts 17 and 18 that what you began through your first witnesses, you're still doing through us. We thank you for the, the fact that the same message can still save today, even as it did hundreds of years ago. That Christ is still raised and his power is still working and is still able to bring us from darkness into light. Lord, we pray for fresh encouragement, fresh help, fresh confidence. Or new clarity, new decisiveness and intentionality in our relationships to speak about Jesus. That we would derive from your comfort to Paul, comfort for ourselves. That though we face rejection, still you are with us. God, we pray for a harvest to be reaped. That you would plant the seed through our evangelism and it would grow into people saved. People who will join in heaven. Around your throne praising you because you are the lamb who was slain and raised and reigns. Please impress your word on our hearts and may it change us this week. And bring glory to your name through that. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.